Welcome to Shield of the Republic, a podcast sponsored by the Bulwark and the Miller Center of Public Affairs at the University of Virginia, and dedicated to the proposition articulated by Walter Lippmann during World War II that a strong and balanced foreign policy is the shield of our democratic republic. I'm Eric Edelman. I'm a contributor at the Bulwark, counselor at the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments, and a non-resident fellow at the Miller Center. My normal partner in this enterprise, Elliot Cohen, the Arlie Burke Chair in Strategy at the Center for Strategic and International Studies and the Robert E. Osgood Professor of Strategy at the Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies is on travel. So I am soloing today with our very distinguished guest, Lieutenant General Sami Sadat of the Afghan National Security Forces. General Sadat may be known to some of our listeners for having written an extremely powerful and impassioned op-ed in the New York Times several weeks after the fall of Kabul in 2021. And he also is a major figure in the Will Heinemann documentary, Retrograde, which our listeners can see streaming on Disney+, Plus, which accounts for the fall of, of Afghanistan, focusing on General Sadat's unit and his special forces partners in the U.S. It's a a searing documentary, which I hope our listeners will take the time uh, to watch in its entirety. Um, Very, very important, I think, uh, to watch it. Uh, Lieutenant General Sadat was, a, uh, if I'm not mistaken, a graduate of the United Kingdom Defense Academy, as as well as the King's College uh, Program in War Studies. And uh, we're delighted to have you, General Sadat. Thank you for having um, me here, Mr. Edelman, and I look forward to our conversation today. I want to start by talking a little bit about some current events. I do want to, as we move on in a conversation, talk about what you're doing in, in the United States where you're currently on tour and talk a little bit about the future. But I think first we should probably focus a little on the past. You know, not, not too long ago, a couple of weeks ago, the Biden administration released uh, an interim report uh, on its findings about what uh, what happened in Afghanistan in 2021 and the collapse of the Afghan National Security Forces. This comes in the wake of a long report by the Special Inspector General on Afghanistan for the U.S. that uh, examined the collapse of the Afghan National Security Forces. I would say that the Biden administration report to Congress, the 12 pages interim report, is a kind of farrago of self-justification. It is a a lot of finger pointing uh, at the Trump administration, but some of that finger pointing is, in fact, uh, valid, as you yourself acknowledge, General, in your New York Times op-ed. So let's start there. Let's start with the Trump administration's Doha agreement with the Taliban. Uh, From your point of view as a commander in the field, what did you think of the agreement uh, when you heard about it? What was the impact of the agreement? And what is your assessment of that agreement and the manner in which it was carried out? Thank you very much. Um, I think the agreement uh, was flawed. I think the agreement lacked longevity. I think the agreement didn't have a guarantor that this agreement was going to be implemented with a group such as Taliban. I think it was very naive 
to assume that the Taliban has changed all of a sudden into this responsible um, party that will do things uh, by our standard or the way we 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 look at it. I think um, the fact that the uh, agreement was made without uh, Afghan government being party to it made it extremely difficult for us to understand or to actually uh, make use of the agreement in any shape or form. So ultimately, the agreement was used by the Taliban against the United States and against the Afghan government. And I think the agreement is the principal cause of why um, uh, Afghanistan fell into the Taliban. However, um, I also believe that President Trump had, had uh, made arrangements um, w through the interlocutors with the Taliban to maintain two U.S. bases and also continue to support the Afghan National Army even af in the aftermath of the agreement's implementation. And the fact that the Taliban will be part of the Afghan government uh, was possible and was probable. It could have only happened if the United States maintained its military presence and then watch over the agreement's implementation. I think things went completely wrong when President Biden took over and unilaterally decided to pull out troops uh, while cutting all uh, political, military, and economic support for the Afghan army on the ground to, to continue to, to fight. So unfortunately, we, our chance of fighting was taken away from us in an assumption that we have to give peace a chance whereby the Taliban will honor peace, and so we have to honor it as well. We honored the peace, although we were not party to it, but because our strategic partner, the United States, was, so because of that, we honored the peace deal. But the peace deal was a wrapped-up bomb in a nice cover handed over to the Afghans only to explode in our face and also to bring, to tarnish the United States' reputation globally and make that chaotic uh, withdrawal and the collapse of uh, Afghanistan that history will remember as a very failed uh, political um, program that was uh, mismanaged, mishandled uh, all over um, the beginning and the end of uh, how the United States troops have left. This was avoidable. This was completely avoidable if the United States government, led by President Biden, had spoken to us instead of speaking to the Taliban and say, hey, you know what, because of our national security, whatever reasons we're leaving Afghanistan, we would be like, okay, thank you very much. You have done a lot for us. And we would have made measures and made planning that not only that would safeguard our country, but also the withdrawal of the U.S. would have been completely smooth, easy, and possible. Unfortunately, it was the U.S.'s representative, Khalilzad, continuing to plan with the Taliban, how the Americans should get out, when they should get out, and, and all that, and it kind of didn't work. Um, it cost us, me, my own entire country, and it costed the United States a hell of a reputation globally. I want to come back to uh, some of these decisions the Biden administration made. Certainly what you just said reflects uh, the Special Inspector General report on the uh, collapse of the Afghan National Security Forces, which makes the point consistently that there was insufficient coordination between either the Trump or the Biden administration with the Afghan government and certainly with the Afghan uh, national security forces. I, I'd like to stay just for a minute on some of the flaws of the agreement as originally negotiated. You pointed to 
the fact that there was no guarantor. So the Taliban did undertake, as part of this Doha agreement, several steps, and and they were sort of one-sided already to begin with, right? So the government of Afghanistan, although not party to the talks, was committed by the agreement to make a release of, I think, some 5,000 Taliban prisoners. They were supposedly meant to go home to their villages and not return to fighting, but we know that, in fact, almost all of them immediately went back uh, to fighting. The Taliban also undertook not to attack U.S. forces, but of course that left implicit that they were free to attack the Afghan National Security Forces. I want to ask you, you know, whether that in and of itself was a demoralizing factor for your your troops, troops under your command, when they learned that this was how the U.S. partner had agreed to proceed. That's point point one. Point point two is they were also committed to actually sit down and negotiate with the with the Afghan government, which, to my knowledge, they never never did. And then there were these side agreements that you talk about with regard to potential bases continuing in the aftermath, U.S. bases continuing in the aftermath of negotiations. Although, as I understand it, none of that was ever committed to paper. These were all oral understandings. Is that, am I correct about that? Correct. Uh, I think all of the three points, the first one, if you read the Doha agreement again, there is no mention of Afghan government to begin with. So practically, in the legal document, for the first time, the Afghan government was removed. What they mention is the establishment of an Islamic government um, that is not, um, as we call ourselves, the Islamic Republic of Afghanistan. It was like um, the Islamic government, as the Taliban call it, the Islamic government. The second part was, uh, I believe there are uh, secret annexes to the Doha Agreement, I would believe that those entail some information about the U.S.'s presence and access um, into conducting counterterrorism operations where the Taliban would deny any kind of uh, international terrorist group um, access into Afghanistan. And lastly, um, the impact was powerful, and not only it impacted the Afghan forces, the Afghan political class, and then uh, began to understand that this government was no longer supported by the United States. It had its regional impact as well. Regional countries like were were neighbored by Pakistan, Iran, um, Central Asia, like Russia. We are neighbored with China. So it kind of opened the door for them to support the opposing force of uh, the Afghan government being the Taliban. So all of them had played a significant role. The country of Qatar, who is um, a, a U.S. ally, uh, has poured hundreds of millions of dollars into the Taliban fighters to establish large-scale fighting units. Thousands and thousands of men were trained, equipped with military-grade tactical equipment, with weapons, with clothes, with uh, night vision goggles, with everything in Pakistan, and the Pakistani army was establishing these units one after another, and they were pushed into Afghanistan to take over um, the country, while not only we didn't have the United States um, military support, but actually our own ammunition, like heavy artillery, ammunition for our air force, which was using quite sophisticated 
a rocket system and other equipments that was needed for the war was withheld um, intentionally by the United States in order to balance, as they call it, the battlefield. So the Taliban become a little bit powerful, we become a little bit weaker, so the both sides will make agreement. All of this was based on the assumption that in a perfect world, everything will work and uh, Ambassador Khalilzad will be managing all of that. And as we saw it, it was only us, our party, that honored um, the agreement and we stood by um, for hoping that peace will uh, come out of this agreement. But the Taliban and the Taliban supporters, all the countries that rivaled the United States, have had other plans. And Ambassador Khalilzad continued to lie to the U.S. government, cover what the Taliban were really planning, and continued to lie to us, to the Afghan government, saying that the Taliban will honor the agreement and they will become part of the government. Unfortunately, we were blindsided by this. And unfortunately, um, our optimism um, has brought us into this disastrous, uh, you know, uh, failing of our state and the taking over of, of the Taliban. You said uh, that when the Biden administration took over and decided to proceed with the agreement without much, if any, real consultations. I know that Secretary Blinken spoke to President Ghani, but my impression is that the it was not a consultation. It really was more or less a diktat about what the United States was, was planning to do. But you said had the U.S. shared its plans with you, it would, it would have been possible for a smoother exit by the U.S. And, and perhaps not the catastrophic collapse. That would not have been possible, however, unless the U.S. had agreed to keep the contract support the United States provided to the Afghan National Security Forces for the maintenance of both rotary and fixed-wing aircraft, for instance, uh, vehicles, trucks, other combat vehicles, and other equipment. And yet that contract support was pulled out immediately. Did you know right from the beginning when the Biden administration said they were leaving that the contractors would be going too? Was that ever spelled out to you or your colleagues in the ANSF, or was that just uh, something you learned about after the fact as they started to leave Bagram and other, other bases? To clarify, Eric, from 2014, the United States did not have combat operations inside Afghanistan. So it was the Afghan army that was protecting the cities, the highways, the government, the population centers, the trade centers, and everything all together. So the United States did not have a combat operation since 2014. Correct. We held the country from 2014, and we kind of got better uh, better at it. By 2019, it was a full-blown Afghan army, you know, on offensive. We took back a lot of districts. We expanded our horizon of security. We depleted the Taliban units, several of them across the country, as the new generation of the Afghan general officers, people like me, people like Khoshal Sadat, General Mustafa Wardak and everyone else came and took over the command of the course. We really, really started going after the Taliban and expanding, and it was working. And we had some uh, U.S. Air Force support. We had zero U.S. soldiers on the ground going with us and conducting operations. So it worked, and it was working perfectly all right. And we hope that 
in the next few years as we were uh, taking more and more responsibility from our older generation of generals, we felt like we would finish off the Taliban, but it seems the fate had something else planned for us. Unfortunately, the Doha agreement arrested all of those progress and, and, and support. To come back to your point, no, we were not aware of that not only the U.S. troops are leaving, but actually they are forcing the contractors to leave um, Afghanistan as well, which was quite dramatic. And you would think that this is some kind of a conspiracy. If you pull out the contractors, everyone thinks like, if someone believes that the United States military will be able to fight a war without the contractors, he or she is wrong. In today's world, the, the warfare is so complex it has so many moving parts that you need contractors to support you. Yes, Secretary Blinken continued to call President Ghani, but it was to warn him to leave office. And this is what they wanted. Like Secretary Blinken, the last call he made was three days before the fall of Kabul. He told President Ghani to resign and leave the office. And this is exactly what President Ghani did. And there was no plan to back it up. And then everything started uh, scrambling. Just to go back to the point you made, that from 2014 on, U.S. combat casualties in Afghanistan were absolutely minimal. It was literally a handful uh, of people. On the other side of the ledger, what were uh, Afghan National Security Force casualties like from 2014 to 2019, roughly? I think the brunt of our casualties came from 2014 and 15 and 16 where the Afghan um, National Army was uh, preparing to adopt itself with the growing Taliban uh, capabilities, like we didn't have the Air Force, we didn't have a proper heavy artillery and all that. And gradually, you know, as we learned um, how to add on these classes into our warfighting capabilities, the casualties kind of draw down. I'd say that it was in, 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 in 2014, we had a thousand casualty every month, uh, all over from January till December. And then 2015, it kind of continued a little bit uh, back and forth. And by 2016, the second half of 2016, the casualty rate then dropped as the Afghan army, um, you know, adopted itself more into poised, more into, you know, war fighting and stuff like that. By 2019, our casualty was also minimum because we were on the offensive and we had little casualties on the defense. The casualty was still pretty, pretty high and to the standard, but comparing it with previous years, every year the casualty rate was dropping as the Afghan army was getting better and better at its job. But then in 2019, when you had the Doha agreement, one of the first things that stopped was, as I understand it, U.S. combat air support to Afghan forces. So it, it was, wasn't only that the United States, as part of Doha, said, you, the Taliban, won't attack us, the U.S., but you can attack the Afghan National Security Forces. But we also removed one of the critical enablers that had enabled some of the battlefield success you're describing, which was our combat air support. Is that, is that accurate? Correct. So after the Doha agreement, 98% of the United States air support um, conducted in support of the Afghan National Army and the police was cut off. So from 100 strikes before, we got two strikes. That was minimum just to break the fight kind of thing. 
it was not effective anymore and it kind of um, grew the the thinking amongst the Afghan uh, national army that the United States is um, intentionally not um, striking the Taliban anymore. The plane would come, it would be circling around the checkpoint as the Taliban large number, you know, bandwagon to attack this small Afghan national police checkpoint. And the police would be like, why is the aircraft not conducting strikes? It was heartbreaking. It was difficult, not only for me, but also for my American brothers who were in the uniform. The problem was now the rule of engagement have dramatically changed and every airstrike that was conducted against the Taliban, it has to be approved by Ambassador Khalilzad. Ambassador Khalilzad was completely in bed with the Taliban. So instead of saying like, okay, let's go ahead and do it, he would call the Taliban as like, hey, no, we are conducting an airstrike here because your guys are attacking. So basically telling them to you know, run away because there would be an, an airstrike. It was, it, was, it was tragic, it was difficult, it was very frustrating. Unfortunately, it played a huge role in, in what happened to our country. It's really quite striking that in the administration's 12th page interim report, there's almost no mention at all. In fact, I think there is no mention, literally, of the withdrawal of contract support. Uh, for the Afghan National Security Forces. It's, of course, mentioned in extraordinary detail in the SIGR report, the Special Inspector General report for Afghanistan, but not in the Biden administration's own defense of itself and of its withdrawal, which appropriately blames President Trump and the Doha Accord for a lot of this, but then seems to suggest that all of its decisions were therefore uh, foreordained by what what the Trump administration has, had done, when in, in fact, of course, as you and I have just been discussing, the United States would have been perfectly within its rights to not have continued with the Doha agreement since it wasn't being implemented by the Taliban. No one forced the Biden administration to keep Ambassador Khalilzad on as the special envoy. In fact, I know for a fact that very senior former officials uh, counseled the uh, Biden transition team not to keep him on because of the deficiencies of, of the Doha uh, agreement. So uh, unfortunately, the Biden folks, I, I think, have really obfuscated a lot of what, what actually uh, happened here. You mentioned that your U.S. partners, special forces partners, were troubled by what they saw. That's a major I would say, element that comes through if you watch the retrograde documentary. Can you talk a little bit about that? How did it go? These were people who had been fighting side by side with you for some period of time, and they're watching this excruciating process go on. Tell us a little bit about that. Retrograde is a documentary film developed by National Geographic, directed by Matthew Heinemann. So a, a group of National Geographic videographers came to Helmand, where I was commanding, with Green Berets, and they wanted to film the last mission of the United States, and then it kind of flipped the, the, the focus of the documentary changed to the Afghan side, and they followed me around. They spent months and months uh, with me in Helmand, following me to, from one battleground to another, now, I think the documentary chronicles a couple of things which are very important. One is the tender relationship between the Afghan army and the American um, side. 
um, is, is very explicit, it's very strong, um, and it's very visible. Um, and for years and years, we have worked both sides to become closer partners, you know, like brothers, integrate with one another, and to, in order to increase the mission effectiveness. The second thing is it shows the struggle of um, the Afghan army and the sacrifices that we were paying, coffins and coffins of Afghan soldiers are loaded into the C-130 every day, you know, taken to their families as we continue to fight on the, gr on the ground. The third thing it shows is really the lack of support for the Afghan National Army, and we were fighting, uh, commanders were fighting for scarce resources, the kind of like ammunition, some minimal things that you need for, for the fight as the battlefield became more and more intensified and the Taliban kind of came in large thousand numbers to attack these cities, especially the city of Lashkargah. But ironically, the city of Lashkargah survived. Not only it survived the Taliban's um, offensive after offensive, I actually defeated every single offensive of the Taliban in southwestern Afghanistan in the city of Lashkargah. Now, Lashkargah in the Taliban planning was the first city to be taken over after the Doha agreement. But it became the last city to fall after everything has fallen apart in the rest of the country because we fought. We were a good team of Afghan uh, commanders, you know, governors and everyone. We worked together. We, we had a little bit uh, of, of the war fighting machine, but we utilized it to its maximum and it kind of survived. It also shows that the Taliban were absolutely um, uh, possible to defeat the Taliban and deny them the, the comeback to, to power. But it was politics that fall apart all over, not only on the American side, but actually on the Afghan side as well. Our politicians are much to be blamed for as well. But the normal soldier, um, we continued to fight, and our American brothers continued to send us the message of support and rooting and, you know, um, and, and giving us the moral support um, that uh, we continue to fight um, in, in the battlefield. The documentary and the comments you just made are really an incredible testimony to why President Biden's comments at the time that Afghanistan was falling that Afghans were not willing, the Afghan army was not willing to fight for its own defense were so wrong and, uh, you know, unfair characterization of what had been going on since 2014 and what was actually going on even at that moment. You wrote in the, in the New York Times op-ed that appeared in the immediate aftermath of the fall of Kabul that, that there were, uh, there was uh, responsibility on the Afghan side as well. Do, do you want to talk about that just for a minute? But you know, how do you see that part of the story? Yes, Afghan political class was divided. Um, unfortunately, after the Doha agreement, which gave us enough reason for all of the politicians to get united behind the army and uh, kind of support the war effort with every single means of all our national powers, politics, society, everything. Unfortunately, that leadership was missing. Uh, unfortunately, there was corruption in our uh, political system while contracting some of the other support elements into the Afghan army to continue to support. I, again, there can, Khalilzad comes into the play. He divided the Afghan political class when President Ghani refused to accept 
the Doha deal. Uh, then he went on with, to the former president, Hamid Karzai. Then he went on to uh, Abdullah Abdullah, saying that, you know, you will be the president because Ghani is out of the office. Then he went on to all of the warlords, basically, like, you know what? The Taliban told me they want to make peace. It's President Ghani who doesn't want to make peace. So it kind of political class got divided. Some of them, you know, supporting Khalilzad. Some are supporting now the Taliban to come and join the Afghan government. The others, you know, went into other countries like, you know, talking to some of our bad neighbors um, to buy their own influence in the game. So unfortunately, this division... Uh, never um, uh, was fixed enough uh, to give us uh, enough, um, uh, you know, support in order to continue fighting, although the odds were, were against us. I was always optimistic that we can win this war um, if our politicians came together and give us enough support that uh, we needed uh, in the battleground. So the Afghan political class is equally to be blamed. As I wrote in my op-ed in New York Times um, uh, a week, uh, two weeks after the fall of Kabul, it was um, President Ghani and President Biden to be responsible for this. President Biden more so because he had the power, the means, and the capability to avoid this man-made catastrophe. And I think what President Biden did is exactly what the terrorists wanted. I mean, this was their dream. If you go, again, around the world, you know, follow the international terrorist organizations, Al-Qaeda, Boko Haram, Al-Shabaab, uh, uh, Pakistani terror groups, Central Asian terror groups, all of them celebrated. So the only people who agreed with this decision of President Biden pulling absolutely out no matter what happens is the terrorist groups. Nobody, no good person, no good woman and man around the world has agreed with this decision. But anyway, you know, he, he did what he wanted to do. And I, I, I don't want to say much more because I'm on a tour in the U.S. The last thing I want is the administration coming after me and not allowing me to do what I need uh, well, to do. Well, we'll come back to your, your tour in the administration. I mean, you also spoke about in the uh, op-ed about the cronyism and the corruption that uh, was endemic in the government and, and the way that that also played a role. So I, I, I asked the question basically to make the point that your assessment, I think, is a fairly balanced one. You, you are not seeking to blame purely the United States or, or the Biden administration per se. So at the end of the dramatic period of time in August, when things start to unravel, you were asked to leave Helmand, where you were commanding a division, and come back to take charge of the defense of Kabul. Although by the time you returned, the Taliban were already essentially breaching the gates. But tell us a little bit about, about that, and, and how did you yourself depart Afghanistan? The second week of August, things started to get bad, and then I was called to Kabul to take charge of the Afghan Special Operation Corps, and I refused. I said, no, let me finish my job here. I just finished defeating the last units of the Taliban were expanding into the city. No, I want to make sure that we, you know, we hold this terrain because this is the bedrock of the Taliban. Southwestern Afghanistan is the place where the Taliban came into being. And this is the place where for the second time 
they came back into, uh, you know, being um, a terrorist group. I said, the only place to defeat the Taliban is southwestern Afghanistan. And then from here, we can expand. And they said, well, Kabul is going to fall apart if you don't show up. I couldn't believe it. For the four months period to that, I was always in the fighting. I didn't follow any news. Day and night, I was just busy with my own um, war with the Taliban. So little did I know that the politics and the Doha and these agreements have completely shattered the confidence of not only politicians, but actually some uh, security officials who are in charge of Kabul as well. I had no idea. Reluctantly, I agreed to come to Kabul. I arrived in Kabul at the evening of the 13th of August. On the 14th, I was informed that you are now also to be uh, oversighting the Kabul security. And I, I was stunned by the abrupt decisions that were made you know, so quickly and without consulting me in something. On the 15th, as I started to conduct my first initial assessment of the city, I heard word that President Ghani had fled. And from that point onwards, um, I tried very hard to maintain control and uh, discipline in the city. Unfortunately, the news of the president flooding uh, you know, w was distributed very, very fast, and it became impossible for me to hold everyone together and uh, protect uh, the city um, of Kabul. So then my job became to uh, save some of um, our intelligence and special operators that were trapped in Kabul and bring them to Kabul airport and fly them um, uh, elsewhere. Uh, I remained behind for a couple of days and made sure that um, I could save enough, uh, not enough, but uh, as much as I could uh, of my people, and I did that. And then I had to fly um, to the United Kingdom for medical treatment. And in the meantime, I was injured. I was nursing my own wounds, but it became unbearable uh, as uh, things became more and more uh, pressing. Uh, mentally and physically for me in Kabul airport. So I flew into the United Kingdom where I received medical treatment and I kind of did my recovery in the UK. Were you aware of the fact that the CENTCOM commander was meeting in Doha as all of this was happening in the last, in those days, the 13th, 14th period of uh, in Afghanistan? I believe it was in those days. He met with uh, Mullah Barader and they discussed whether or not the Taliban or the U.S. would provide security in Afghanistan for the final evacuation. Now, of course, it would have required the U.S. presumably to put more troops in to Kabul to secure the entire city. And the, the CENTCOM commander uh, at the time made a judgment that uh, nobody in Washington would agree to that. So he did not take up the offer to provide you know security for the whole city but had the us done that do you think it could have that you and your colleagues together with a larger group of americans could have provided a security perimeter that would have enabled a much more uh, calm and orderly withdrawal as opposed to what we saw take place in those final days I mean, you just pointed the, the major flaw. I wish the CENTCOM commander came and spoke to me or to other Afghan generals in Kabul. Why is he flying into Doha and talking to my enemy? I mean, what kind of a mental status 
would I have watching them talking about the security of my city where I'm responsible and the issues of our life and death? I mean, what kind of confidence would it leave in the hearts of the Afghan politicians and the Afghan military leaders? No, there was zero, zero such a kind of uh, engagement with me on the other side and, or with um, some other Afghan leaders. I wanted to maintain security for Kabul, even though when I heard President Ghani left, I went to the US um, command General Peter Vasli, and I said, brother, we need to maintain security for the entire city. He said, no, my orders are to take everyone to Kabul airport. I said, that's one airport. There's a lot of people um, in Kabul. But it, then it was very obvious uh, for me that um, the, they didn't care anymore about me or my guys or my city. It was just, you know, get the American diplomats and American civilians out so you guys are on your own. So... Uh, tell us what you're doing in, in the United States and what do you think, you know, the prognosis is for, uh, for Afghanistan? It's gone through a, a very difficult uh, year and almost two years now, coming up on two years of Taliban rule. It seems from everything one can see from outside that uh, the status of women and girls is getting worse. Food insecurity throughout the country is, is very great. The Taliban seems to be totally unwilling to make any accommodation to the requirements of the international community to get additional assistance into Afghanistan. So what's your prognosis? So the legacy of the terrible Doha deal and also the abrupt withdrawal is two things, right? The first thing is a humanitarian catastrophe in Afghanistan. Today, as we speak, six million people are sleeping uh, without dinner um, at night. Children are threatened in, for this extreme malnutrition. The hospitals are running out of medicine. Taliban ha are imposing this draconian law um, in the name of uh, the Islamic Sharia, beating men and women, banishing women from the society completely, and then asking everyone to absolutely pledge allegiance to their emir, to this devil guy who's sitting in Kandahar and not meeting anyone. And the second thing is really the terrorism part of this. After we left Afghanistan, Al-Qaeda took over our positions. Today, as we speak, there is 40,000 foreign fighters in Afghanistan, and these are members of Al-Qaeda. These are members of Islamic Movement of Uzbekistan. These are members of Pakistani terrorist groups. These are members of some horrible bad um, terrorist groups that are all joining hands with, with the Taliban. Taliban are providing them training, safe haven, and also support logistically, um, as well as, you know, the ground for them to plan and, and uh, come up with the future operations uh, against the rest of the world, including the United States of, of America. So the Taliban are not friend of America. They're the enemy of America. I'd say the Taliban are the biggest um, uh, international terrorist organization active today. And if anyone else tells you the story otherwise, let's go back and follow up what um, have been the Taliban have been saying and then what have been doing. So their policy and practice is completely against uh, the United States of America. The other thing that came up in the middle of all of this is really China going back to Afghanistan and contracting the much-needed minerals, like they got a contract for uh, Afghan lithium for 30 years, 
They got a contract for Afghan copper. They got a new contract for Afghan oil and gas. We have a lot of oil and gas. We might have, a, you know, oil and gas the size of Saudi Arabia. Our oil and gas is untapped. And what is China doing with all that? They're empowering its military and economy to compete with the United States. And Afghanistan is geographically located in some of the most important place in the world. We have four atomic powers in our neighborhood. It's China, Russia, and Pakistan, and Iran, most likely. We have 70% of global population around our country, like these population giants, India, China, Bangladesh, and then the other countries. And Afghanistan is right in the middle of it. It's such an important vantage point, not only you know, for strategic competition, but Afghanistan has resources. Afghanistan is a place where you could suppress literally any terror groups that want to rise into a global challenger uh, of peace and, and stability. For me and for my brothers and sisters, there is no other way. We're going back and, and fighting to uh, liberate our country. And it's our country, and we want it back. We, the people of Afghanistan refuse to accept the Taliban. The people of Afghanistan refuse to allow the Taliban to represent Afghanistan. We're not terrorists. The Taliban are terrorists. If the Taliban had anything Afghan inside them, they will call themselves Afghan. There is zero times the Taliban would call themselves Afghan. They call themselves the Taliban. And there is a reason uh, for, for all of that. And our main um, bulk of supporters is the young generation of Afghan people. 73% of Afghan population is under the age of 30, 30 years old. This is the population that is grown up in the last 20 years of peace and stability and democracy. They've been educated. They traveled the world. They have interacted with Americans and other people. We had open civil society. We had open media. We had jobs. We had you know, so many things going on. So this generation is now uh, an asset that can bring change into Afghanistan. But if we do not use them, they will turn into a vulnerability. And the Taliban have restarted this mass re-education program to re-educate some of these young men and turn them into uh, extremists and terrorists and then use them against our neighbors and the rest of the people um, around our area. So for this reason, I came to the United States. Um, when 9-11 happened, Afghans were the first to stand with Americans and go after Al-Qaeda. We went not only after our own enemy, but we actually went after uh, Al-Qaeda, and we lost a lot of men doing that, and we continue to do that. And so it's bad time for us now, and we're here to ask you for a favor to stand with us so we can depose this oppressive regime of Taliban and bring Afghanistan back to the right path, making the Taliban come back as a in brief interruption in our journey to prosperity, um, peace, um, and a good country. What is the mechanism, uh, General Sadat, for making that happen? How can that happen? How can the Taliban now be dislodged from, from power in Afghanistan? In any event, there will be no path without violence, unfortunately, and we are thinking to minimize violence as much as possible. There will be a political process based on which we're trying to restore the Afghan constitution, and that was adopted in 2004. This is the constitution that has the absolute 
majority support of the Afghan people. It's a modern constitution. This constitution assembly was chaired by our former king, Zahir Shah. Um, religious leaders, women leaders, um, activists, everyone had a, had a role in this constitution. So the best thing is to bring it back so the people have a choice to make their own um, decisions. I think there will be a political element to it. I think there will be a military element into it, and there will be a huge um, uh, civil society element uh, into deposing the Taliban. I would say this, that today, as the Afghan people, our neighbors and the, west of the rest of the world have seen the Taliban, they know how bad they are. So legitimately, it's easier for us to take on the Taliban. We have more legitimacy than they have. The second thing is Taliban were difficult to deal with as an insurgency. It's much easier to deal with them now as, as they are um, the regime. They, um, they don't have enough numbers to control all the cities and districts. Um, they don't have economic support. They don't have weapons deals with any country that can continue to support them. And the people of Afghanistan are rebelling every single day. So there will be a national insurrection and we have to be there to manage not only the insurrection, but actually after the insurrection, create an Afghanistan that's at peace with herself and it's at peace with the rest of the world. General Sadat, uh, I wish you well in your efforts. You know, Afghans like you who fought and bled with Americans for 20 years, I think um, deserve you know, nothing less. So I... First, thank you for your service uh, during uh, the long war we've had together. Is there anything else? I want to give you the last word. If there's anything else you want to let our listeners know, I want to give you a chance to, to do that. So me and my team were going around the United States with uh, some Afghan generals and politicians, the younger generation of Afghan generals and politicians and American volunteers who kindly support us, like the 1208 Foundation and some other uh, foundations were traveling around the United States, going to universities, going to communities uh, to talk about Afghanistan. And uh, we, I just want to make uh, sure I take this moment to say thank you to all the veterans, uh, the citizens who stood up um, to help Afghanistan in the darkest possible day. I think we saw the, the, the unfortunate and the greatness of America in the same day. The unfortunate was the government of America abandoning us and leaving abruptly. But we saw also the greatness of American people who stood up. Thousands and thousands of Americans stood up and helped their Afghan brothers and sisters. We saw that. We will remember that. And we are um, extremely grateful for their support and, and, and their, um, their help. Um, it made really, really, it made a big difference in, in our lives. And we will remain grateful for the, the people of America supporting Afghans. Well, this will bring this episode to uh, a close of Shield of the Republic. Our guest has been Lieutenant General Sami Sadat of the Afghan National Security Forces. You can uh, get a, a kind of visceral sense of his fight uh, in Helmand province uh, if you watch Retrograde, the documentary, which he plays a key uh, role in, and uh, we just want to wish you well. 